Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, and we are finishing a paragraph off that I started last week. It's a paragraph about two people in particular that needed help, one a ruler and the other a woman, one who is whom is named in Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, Jairus, and the other who is left anonymous. One who is probably more of an extrovert as a temple ruler and a public figure. One who would be in league with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law. A public official. And the other, a woman who had lived a life of 12 years of obscurity, in obscurity as uh, having an issue of blood, hemorrhaging and doing at such a rate that uh, was it, it would be something that would be against the law of God for her to be in contact with people. She would have been isolated from the fellowship of worship and people and public gathering. Someone who would be on permanent quarantine, if that can relate to the the vibe and feeling of that for someone um, such as her. Both, though, had something in common. Both wanted Jesus. Both saw Jesus as the answer for their desperate situation. Jairus, who was up here and in the public eye at the center of the temple, and a woman who couldn't even broach the door of the temple, one who was the orchestrator of of worship and gathering and community in the name of Yahweh, and the other who was forbidden to be in contact with the people of God because of the law that God had written. Both found their needs met to be met in Christ because Jairus, as we're going to recap, was uh, in utter desperation. His daughter in Matthew is said to be dead. In Mark's account, Luke's account, there are precursors uh, that say she's at the brink of death. She's almost dead. She, I've left her in a state where she is dying and in a place where because I left her and went on this walking journey, we'll probably never see her again alive unless you come back and help her. That's the desperation. People whisper in his ears and tell him, no, she is dead. She, we're confirming she is dead. And so he is an abject horror at the end of himself in utter desperation with, before Christ. And then this woman who is um, operating by stealth through the crowd to get to Jesus, ignoring the law to not touch people. You have to touch people as you work through this crowd. Uh, She's done with that prohibition because she knows that holiness is, at this point in her life, not separation. It's, It's gathering and communion with Christ. It's not being away from um, people anymore. It's going to the person who will make her whole again. 12 years. 12 years with a child would be what Jairus would say. I raised this little girl. I love her. She's the centerpiece of my life. She's on the cusp of going into adulthood in that culture. She's got the rest of her life in front of her, but she's dying and now pronounced dead. And then the woman who's been ostracized for 12 years, same period of time, and both by their own circuitous route, finding Jesus. Jairus, who is confirmed by Jesus, where Jesus says, I will help you. I will go with you. I will, I will go heal this little girl. I'll bring her back to life. 
is suddenly interrupted by this woman who's operated by stealth, touches the tassel hem of Jesus' garment, has the power of God surge from him to her, and she's healed. Her plan was to keep it private probably and go away. He spins around, identifies her, and calls her out for a public profession of faith saying, take heart, my daughter. Take heart, my daughter. And she was, your faith has made you well. She was confirmed as being made well. That was what we went through last week in our text, verses 18 through 23, just by way of summary. We're going to head to the home of Jairus now and complete this journey in this paragraph. But I just, before we kind of kind of put frame, put, put framework around this with the outline, I want to principalize the morning. This is the one thing the whole thing is saying. Jesus cares about you growing spiritually. Now, you say, well, that's real powerful. That's pretty generic. Let me just personalize a little bit more. Jesus knows every intimate detail about what's going on in your life right now. Everything. He knows the stuff that you're not even facing about yourself that's going on. Let alone the stuff that you would be unwilling to share with other people around you. You'd be unwilling to confess those things. Those are the deepest private moments of issues of your life. Like this woman's um, physical issue, you have a spiritual issue that is a barrier between you and fellowship with the Lord, you and fellowship with other people. These are things that only you can, by navigating through the crowd and bring to Jesus, only by doing that can you resolve. In the same way, this man he, he doesn't have answers. Is his religion going to save him? Is his, is his religious position going to save his little girl? Is his status, his works, his religious efforts, his duties, his persona, his, his abilities, his gifts, can anything help him? No, he's got to strip away all of that. She's got to dig down on the inside. He's got to shred what's on the outside and both have to find their way to the feet of Jesus. That's what Jesus is calling you to do. Strip the outside layer, deal with the inside, and put it at the feet of Jesus because Jesus cares about you growing. He knows you're a believer. Assuming we're all believers, I'm just, as believers, the family of God, he wants you to believe more and believe more deeply. And he wants to help you do that. That's the point that I'm trying to bring together. He's very precise in his dealings with his children. He wants to draw you to himself. He loves you. Reading a book um, these days, and it basically is about, it's about Christ. It's called Gentle and Lowly. And the introduction of that book says that as Christians, we know, I mean, it's like the first page or so. It's a devotional book working through Jesus and his heart for you and his care. And it introduces, um, the book with the concept that we, we know Jesus loves us, but because we know how sinful we are, we, we regularly think something like this. Jesus loves me, but he's a little bit mad at me all the time. But is that the case? I think his grace overrides that. Sure, he's sad with our sin. We grieve him. We grieve the Holy Spirit, but he loves us. Just like a parent loves a child who's messing up, and you just want to give them guidance and keep them on the path. That's Jesus' love for you and for me as we consider growing. Let's just kind of catch up the text with the outline um, a little bit. 
just kind of want to build, build toward where we're going. This is moving from Jairus-like to Christ-like, from anybody else-like to Jesus-like. Point one, Christ will bring you to the point of desperation. He did that with this ruler who, verse 18, knelt before him. My daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him and his disciples. Point two, Christ will allow you to endure hard, humbling circumstances. Verses 20 and 21. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her He said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. This is point three, where Jesus will cover all of your sin and guilt and shame. That's verse 22. Take heart, daughter. It's the only time he ever called a Christian woman a daughter. And so it's amazing that in this text, poetically, you have two daughters that are being helped. You've got the woman who is called daughter. You are my daughter. This is the love, this is the very specific, very enduring love to this woman. And it's the same love that he's going to show to this little girl who has died. Two daughters, Jairus' daughter and this woman who is called Jesus' daughter. Jesus had created this woman, so it was, it was right for him to address her that way. Your faith has made you well, and instantly the woman was made well. That brings us to point four, point four. And that is, Christ will help you see what is beyond death. What does growing spiritually look like? Practically, this last point is the one I want you to focus on. He wants you to grow. He wants you to grow very intimate in intimate ways, specific ways to what he's dealing with in your life. I've been trying to make that point. But what does that look like? It looks like being able to see beyond death. That's, that's the specific of this text. People die. Death is the great leveler. We hate it. It hurts. It stings. We grieve with one another, with people in their loss. We do. I am regularly on the phone with texting, writing a card regularly with these words. I am so sorry for your loss, right? What else can we say? We're just, all we're saying by that is we're not trying to put ourselves exactly in your shoes as if we know how you feel, but we're there with you. It's sorrowing with you, weeping with you, hurting with you, because we need each other in that way. This text is, is showing you a way to believe and be stronger in the issue of facing death. How do you grow spiritually? One way to grow spiritually is to see what's beyond death Verse 18, we've already said it, that Jairus the ruler has knelt before Jesus. Jesus has um, agreed to follow him. This woman with the issue of blood has interrupted that moment. Um, This man, Jairus, is having to deal with that. He has come at a loss, last resort probably. He had to swallow his pride. He probably used to be in league with the rulers, scribes, and Pharisees saying, I want to kill Jesus. I want to deal with this disruptor. I want to eliminate Jesus. But then he moved to the point of faith, making his faith public in humility and love. He's desperate for his daughter. 
It says in Mark 5.35, cross-reference, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Why go on? At, in the earlier um, portion of Mark's reading, the man came to Jesus in verse 23 and said, my daughter is at the point of death. No doubt someone had whispered in his ear, and by verse 35 of Mark, it is your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? They're calling Jesus a teacher. Now, we know Jesus is a teacher, and he's the teacher of teachers. He's the preacher of the kingdom. But this use of the word teacher is superficial. People are saying, why bother the great scholar anymore? I know that he agreed to go and save your daughter when she was on the brink of death, but she's dead now. Let it go. Let it go. Be done with Jesus in that way. Now let him do the big, important ministry, the teaching ministry, the ministry of scholarship. I don't think that's good at all. That's not what Jesus wanted. Jesus wanted this man's faith to grow deeper. Instead of moving away or moving on from Jesus, Jesus wanted Jairus to move deeper in with Jesus, not away from Christ, but toward Christ, toward him. Remember the accounts where Lazarus had died, where you have Martha and Mary, the two sisters, and Martha running out and going, go, kneeling before Jesus when he's coming into Bethany. And she said, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not have died and then later, John eleven thirty two, Mary says the same thing, came to Jesus, fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is saying, that's not the point at all. I'm the resurrection and the life. You have me. You have heaven. You have everything when you have Christ. That's the, the depth that Jesus wants to take Jairus to. That's what he's doing here. It's what he's doing in the ruler's heart. That's what we need to do in our own hearts. Jairus, who came fearlessly, the woman who came fearfully, Jairus, who was the extrovert, the woman who was the introvert, um, woman who was bold but private, and this man who was bold and public, both needed to go deeper. If you go over to Mark 5.36, it gives the specific words that Jesus said to Jairus says, but overhearing, he overheard the people saying that his daughter was dead. And it says, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe, only believe. Take another step, believe, cast off what you're so afraid of and take a step. Go like the centurion did where you know I don't even need to go to the house to raise your slave. Believe more. Jairus's heart stopped. Jesus is saying, don't let your heart stop. Something is going to happen to us in our lifetime and perhaps has happened that makes your heart stop. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Deal with your fear. It's hard. It's hard not to be afraid. But believe, believe. These two commands are clear and strong and it's not enough to retrofit a religious experience that you had 10 years ago and say, I am a believer because I know that I, that happened to me. Or I'm a believer because of the religion I was raised in or the family I was raised in or the 
the prayer I prayed one time. To be a believer is to be a believer and be saved, but you believe and then you continue to believe. Your heart is is taken out and changed up and and it's renewed and and you're saved and it's pulsating and it needs to keep pulsating even when it wants to stop. Believe and keep going. Well, look at our text here back in Matthew 9, verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Let's stop there. This is, again, seeing beyond death. Jesus is bringing Jairus and his disciples up to this funeral scene. It obviously had been at least a day's journey away, maybe more. I don't know, you know, how the circuitous route worked in that little town of Capernaum. You know, it's a little big town, I guess, and, and on that west, northwest side of uh, the Sea of Galilee, the fisherman's town. So I'm not exactly sure why it took him as long as it did probably, but, but the mom with the daughter who had died had already called for flute players and, and, wa- and whalers. Maybe they were already there waiting, you know, for the funeral to begin because she knew it was going to start as soon as her daughter died. That's the way things happened back then. Instead of it being a Western funeral where everything's quiet and hushed and subdued, um, this was a loud funeral. I was talking to uh, uh, one in our congregation who's from Russia, a former Soviet Union, and um, he talked about how they had parades in um, Ukraine, and they were loud events. You've seen loud events in Hispanic parade settings, Day of the Dead settings. Um, pe- some people deal with death in different ways. You have open caskets, sometimes caskets that are in homes where people are eating and the caskets open. People deal with death in all kinds of ways with all kinds of externals. Um, they're not all bad or wrong. That's not my point. Um, but there is a contrast in the text here between the loud flautist, the minstrels that were playing, the, the wailing, there were uh, spontaneous shrieking um, shrieks that would happen. Uh, they, they would have professional wailers who would, who would cry to prompt crying, to manipulate people to try to grieve externally instead of really dealing with death and seeing beyond death like a believer can. Um, they're doing everything they can do externally to try to get it out. And so they would know things in family history that people who have died before that they could suddenly bring their names up and cry and manipulate in that way. The Jews said that those who will not mourn the dead should be burned. It was a pandemonium in this impromptu lamentation that was staged. People would rent their clothes. There were 39 rules in their um, traditional laws for for renting clothes. One of them is to create a hole right over the heart in your clothes. As a male, you would create a fist-sized hole where you'd rent the clothes over your heart. For the female, it's the same hole, same size, but it would be on the back all the way to the skin. And these were just externals. This is what was happening. Even the poorest husband would have, according to the Mishnah, no less than two flutes. One wailing woman would be present at the funeral. And um, all of these would be happening. 
We know some of these prompts in our own funerals. It's not wrong, but the, you know, there's always the, or usually the PowerPoint presentation with the song and you're seeing things. And every funeral I go to, I cry. I mean, whether I knew the person or not, the family or not, it, the stabs of pain that you feel for uh, your lost loved ones intersecting with, with the grief of someone else's pain. And that's a good thing. It's good to bear that with them. But not to the expense of going to Jesus. You have to go to Jesus. This girl was actually dead, but Jesus was going to raise her up. So a funeral that was well underway to make sure that we understood she was dead. Jesus doesn't seem to like the commotion. Verse 23, it's a crowd making a commotion. Mark 5, 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? That's what Jesus said. Why are you doing this? In our text, Matthew has Jesus saying, go away to the wailers, to the flautists, to the, the, the people. Go away. I don't like, Jesus did not like this. As one person put it to me um, in sermon preparation, anytime Jesus says, go away, it means something is terribly wrong. Something is wrong here. Something is not appropriate. And for one reason, Jesus can see the present and also see the future. He's Jesus. He knows he's going to raise this little girl up. So it's inappropriate to have these, these histrionics going on. Spurgeon said he didn't want there to be noise. He wanted the still small voice in the death chamber. The modern church will use all kinds of experiences and lights and sounds and even um, laughter um, to fill in the gaps for where they're saying the Holy Spirit is working and he's really not doing any of that at all. There's a difference between outsiders and histrionics and insiders and those who are really in the chamber with Jesus. That's where you have to be. If you're not there, you're not ready for what can happen in a hard life. We have to go deep and we have to go deeper in our believing the Lord. Well, what Mark's gospel tells us and Luke as well is that Jairus' parents didn't have to go, I'm sorry, the little girl's parents, Jairus and the wife, did not have to go into this chamber with Jesus alone. There was Peter and James and John who would accompany them into this situation. Peter, who's the spokesperson for the disciples, and James, who was the first martyr. And then you have also John, who is the beloved of Christ. You have those who are outside and those who are going inside. You have probably the majority of unbelievers who are out there. And then you have five believers with Jesus who are going inside. Peter, James, John, Jairus, and the mother going in to a quiet room. Now, why, why do I emphasize it being quiet? Look at verse 24, Jesus of Matthew 9 again. He said, go away for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And what did they do? They laughed. They laughed. It's the, the laughter of mockery. Should we expect any less? As Christians, when we go to a funeral, we need to see believers who've died in, in terms of faith. We know that as Randy Carlberg will put it regularly, they're having the best day that they've ever had 
today in heaven. And we, we don't say that to the expense of our own hurt for loss, but we harmonize the two, right? We feel the pain and we also rest in the fact that they're in heaven with Jesus in a place where we're going to be going. This is why Jesus uses the word sleeping. She is sleeping. She's sleeping. What does that mean? Was Jesus duped or Deceived? Did he not understand that she was genuinely dead? She was dead. She was gone. But Jesus wanted to point out that she was going to be resurrected. She's sleeping, but this state that she's in, she's dead, but it's as if she's sleeping because the state that she's in is temporary. Now, this is the language that we can use in our context with loved ones that we've lost. When you go to a funeral and you see someone, especially someone that you grew up with or you loved and you engaged and you see that body that's laying there, it is a shell. You know that the spirit is not in that. There's all kinds of makeup. There's all kinds of, you know, work with the hair and the suit. And it can perhaps help us in that moment to grieve the loss and get closure. And all of those things can be very important and very essential. But at the same time, you know that person is no longer there. And so it's as if they're they're asleep. There's comfort in that word. It's as if they're at rest, but really you know that their spirit is somewhere else and we're going to be reunited physically one day at the resurrection with that person again. And so we have hope as if that person that we've lost is just taking a long, long sleep while we catch up and get where they are or they come back at the the rapture and come get us, right? That's the hope of a Christian. That's what the world laughs at. We're mocked because of that. Let me be bold. Let them mock, right? Let them laugh. Let them jeer. We want them to get it. We want them to have what we have, but don't let their laughter steal the joy and hope that you have in your heart, right? Don't let them take it from you. Grab on more um, tightly to the promises of 1 Thessalonians 4.15. Those who have fallen asleep... We will one day see them again, be caught up in the air. Um, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one speaks of those who are asleep, but they're all going to be changed. There's going to be the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. This is, this is the knowledge that Paul hung on to when he thought, you know, I could be killed in prison. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't wish imprisonment on me or anyone else, but now I've talked to Christian friends and colleagues that have been in prison for the gospel, and it can happen. You've got to say, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's gain. It's Christ. That's my all in all. Luke 23, 43, this day you'll be with me in paradise. This is the hope of heaven, the immediate hope of heaven. Well, what happened? What happened while... uh, Jesus goes into that room. He goes in with the little girl, uh, where the little girl is. He probably knelt down next to the bed. He had put the crowd outside. It says in verse 25, he took, he went in and took her by the hand and the little girl arose. Now, the reason I want to emphasize he took her by the hand is Jesus again is... uh, interrupting 
the use of the law because he's the fulfillment of the law. In Old Testament law, Leviticus 21.11, a priest, specifically a high priest, shall not go into anywhere where there are dead bodies because it will make himself unclean. Jesus is the cleanser. He's not going to be made unclean. He's the one who is holy, who brings holiness. It's never in reverse. So he is the creator, kneels down beside this little girl, takes her by the hand, and specifically in Mark's gospel chapter 5, he looks at the little girl in verse 41. It says, taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. It says immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Luke's account takes it even um, more specific. Dr. Luke talks about the, the girl being raised up, verse 54 of Luke chapter 8, and taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise, and her spirit returned. And she got up at once and he directed, listen, that something should be given her to eat. I like that. I got a lot of hungry boys and kids and Things, you know, moving around in my house all the time, a couple dogs. Somebody's always hungry. Somebody's always wanting something to eat. Jesus cared about this little girl's need. She's hungry. He's going to give an exhortation not to tell anybody. He's going to tell the parents, don't tell anybody about this, uh, what I've done. Don't, don't worry about what they want out there. Don't worry about the people that I put outside. Just relish in this moment. This girl has new life. She can breathe. She's 12. She's walking around. She's restored. And give her something to eat. Don't worry about what's going on out there. Take care of what's her little need inside here. I think there's beauty in that. There's beauty in the the window of heaven. When Jesus healed at Peter's house, when Jesus healed in the synagogue, when he, when he cast demons out and when he raised this little girl, when he raised up the, the widow's son at Nain, um, when, when he raised Lazarus from death, all of that is heaven speak, picturing heaven. That's all for our own hearts. You say that doesn't relate now because he's not doing that kind of stuff in front of us. He's doing it all the time in heaven. That when people enter into heaven, they're face to face with the Lord, with the anticipation that the body is going to be reunited with the spirit and there will be reunion in heaven. That's what this is a picture of. Reunion in heaven. And guess what? In heaven, we're going to eat. We're going to eat well. The marriage supper at the lamb. When you eat a meal with Christians, just think about heaven, especially a good meal, something you really like. You know what? This is a foretaste of heaven. And I know you and you know me and we're having happy fellowship together. That's a heaven moment. That's what heaven feels like in miniature, that moment. I mean, good coffee, not bad coffee, right? Uh, you know, the, the steak is good. It was, it was cooked the right way, you know? There was no weird bitter taste with the veggies, you know? It was just right, you know? And, and when things, that's, that's what Jesus is highlighting. Remember, he, would, he made breakfast on the beach when he restored Peter. When he was in the upper room with his disciples, he ate some food. Why? Because he was resurrected forever and picturing heaven on earth in terms of people recognized him. He could talk. He could engage. He still was who he was, and he was eating. Yeah, we're not going to be married in heaven. Doesn't matter anymore. We'll have perfect fellowship, perfect peace, perfect harmony, 
enjoying each other in a real physical heaven. I think that's so important to understand. So what's the difference between Jesus' resurrection and this little girl's resurrection? Or Lazarus or the widow's son at Nain? Or, you know, what, what's the difference? Well, Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection because he's the first one who had, had fully died and was raised never to be, um, never to be um, resurrected again. It was the final resurrection, and that was the first of that kind. This woman, uh, this little girl, theologians would say, was resuscitated. Now, she had actually died, but the word resuscitation is just, it's kind of a metaphor to say he raised her up to, to full life, but she was still under the fall. She was still affected by sin. She could have gotten sick the very next hour and gotten right back into that same state. She was not raised out of the curse of sin. And so she would still physically die. Jesus rose and he was never to die again. He, he ascended to the right hand of the father. That's why he's the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the pioneer of the resurrection. And all of us as Christians, when we die, unless we are raptured, once we receive our resurrection body, that's, that's it. We're set for heaven um, in that state. There's one resurrection that we will, we will have. Hopefully that helps. It's a difference between people who were raised like the widow's son, like Lazarus, like the little girl. They foreshadowed. They depict or pictured Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection. But they were a foreshadowing, not fully resurrected. But it is a picture of heaven. It's important for us to see. It's important for us to see it in these stories. You know why? Because Jesus wants you to get a handle on life and growing in Jesus and get a handle on death and growing to grasp what it'll be like after death. The gospel, it, it answers death. Jesus forgiving us of our sins is not just so we can have a clean conscience here on earth. It's so that one day we can stand before him and he can say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of my master, your master. We, the sting of death is real. Funerals hurt. Loss is horrible. We need to bear that with people, but we also need to do it in faith and with hope and with a, a level of joy in our hearts where we know where Jesus said to this little girl, Talitha Kumi, in Mark 5, 41, little girl arise, that we all have that same hope. We have that same good news. We have that same joy. What, what, what did the joy look like? Well, go back to Mark, Mark's gospel. It gives a little taste of the joy. Verse 42, Mark 5, 42, they were immediately overcome with amazement. These are the parents in the room. Probably Peter, James, and John as well. And her parents, it says Luke 8.56, were amazed. They were ecstatic. Verse 26 of Matthew 8, back to our text, says the report of this went out through that district. Mark 5.43 says that Jesus had strictly charged them that no one should know this. Luke 8.56 says he charged them, the parents, that no one um, should tell what had happened might seem counterintuitive. We go, look, why wouldn't we want to tell that the little girl's been raised? And why wouldn't we want to do that? Don't we want hard evidence that Jesus is real and he's the miracle worker and we want everyone to believe? 
Well, let me just put it as simply as this. The biggest issue in the room where the little girl was raised was not her resurrection, but the picture of what it means to believe more deeply in Jesus who can raise a little girl up. That makes sense? The resurrection of the little girl, her being brought back to life, that resuscitation moment was super powerful and amazing. But the deepest issue was Jesus wanting Jairus and wanting Jairus's wife, the father and mother, to grow spiritually. That's the deepest issue of your life. He wants you to grow, whether people live, whether people die, whether, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether this circumstance or that happens in your life. God wants you to grow. Preaching it myself. And he wants us to grow and it's specific. It's detailed. It's intimate. It's personal. The whole goal of the Christian life is not to stave off the demons or stave off death or keep this from happening, or get rich, or get powerful. That's, that's not it. Those are for the whalers that he put outside. Get out of the house. Don't think that way. I'm going to raise this little girl up. Talitha Kumi, little girl arise. Let's prove out that I have conquered death. Believe that more deeply. Jesus is at center stage. If the little girl was the point, and she was paraded around outside, guess what would have happened? Everybody would have worshipped the little girl. That's why we don't have the original manuscripts to the Bible, because everybody would worship them. They'd worship them. We, we can't worship the Bible. We know that it's inspired. We know that writers wrote it who were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we have the text as, 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 we, as we've seen copies of it. We'd worship that. People worship miracles. They worship fake miracles. People worship relics. They, they hold dear things. And they would have held this little girl up as, as a miracle to worship. Just like John said, or, or was said to John in the book of Revelation by the angel, don't worship me, don't bow down to me. We don't worship experiences, we, we worship the Lord. It's dangerous to worship experience. It's dangerous to feel the power of God and worship that rather than Jesus, who is God. So that's why he told the leper when he healed him, don't tell anybody. Don't go spread that around. Don't do it. Because he wants people to come to him with genuine faith. Genuine faith. A heart that believes in the Lord. I think Jesus was saying, don't hide the little girl, but don't hype the little girl. It wasn't that she didn't have a life. She didn't have to go into hiding. But don't hype her. Don't make her the point. Don't make her the point. The point was deepening faith more than her being brought back to life. Uh, Judy and I will remember this. We, we went to, actually, you didn't go to this, I don't think. Um, as a, as a, I, th- I think you were spared in one sense. It was a little girl who had, who had died. And she, um, it, was, it's the, it happens often where people go on vacation and you'll have a toddler who's, who's there in the room. And this little girl had gone out to the swimming pool and couldn't swim, went in, drowned, was found at the bottom of the pool dead. And she was a little girl. I don't remember how old exactly, maybe eight or nine. It was a little casket. And uh, the parents um, were believers, are believers. And uh, we're friends with the, uh, the mother. And her, her, ironically, her maiden name was Pain, and then her married name was Sorrows. So she was Pain and Sorrows. And so it's the picture of that is they stood above this little casket, 
and shared their faith. And they were both able to talk. And they were both able to be sad and real and yet rejoice in hope. And the only thing that got them through is the knowledge that they knew that they would see this little girl again. That's why they could be strong. And I'm not saying they were always not, they were always strong and they never were falling apart behind the scenes. I'm not saying that. It's just, how do you get through? How do you get through hard life? How do you get through hard circumstances? How do you not walk around paralyzed in fear about the next bad thing that's going to happen to us? Because we see beyond death and we have hope in this life because we know Jesus and Jesus is working on us. And he wants to bring us into the inner chamber and show us who he is and wake us up and make us strong. That's what gets us through. That little girl in that funeral didn't rise, but they knew that she would one day be resurrected that she was in heaven, that they'd all be together physically again. And that's the hope of the gospel. This is faith, the faith the woman with the issue of blood had, the woman bound in isolation. She had that faith. Jairus had that faith. I believe the wife had that faith. Jesus gave them strength. Jesus cared for two daughters in this story and two parents. At Calvary, listen, at Calvary, Jesus took the woman with the issue of blood. She, he took her place. At Calvary, Jesus took the place of the parents. At Calvary, I believe, he took the place of the little girl. I believe the little girl. That's just my thought with the text. It doesn't say it explicitly. But she was brought back. By who? Uh, Jesus brought you back. Probably she believed. That's what I think. Jesus took our place, too, on the cross, so that we would believe, and not just keep us there at believing, but deepening in our faith. Seeing beyond life into death and seeing beyond death into eternal life. Jesus on the cross, he became desperate. Like Jairus was desperate, Jesus became desperate. Um, He became shame who knew no sin and covered our shame, covered our guilt. He died so that we could live and be raised 